Hey, my name is Jensen, one of the servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope you can lean in and enjoy this message. Welcome to week five of our eight-week series called Disruptive Discipleship. And we've been working our way, as you know, if you've been here, we've been working our way through the very first part of the very first public address we see that Jesus ever gave. We've been in Mark, or in Matthew chapter five, that's the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been focusing on uh, verses one through uh, 12. It's a section of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. We've been plowing our way through that. And this series is motivated by our desire individually and our desire as a church to take Jesus seriously. It's our desire to listen to him closely and then think together about what it means as individuals and together as a a faith community to actually do what he says to do, to do what Jesus asks us to do. Now this coming Thursday, March 24th, my wife and I, Renee, will have been married for 32 years as of Thursday. Yeah. Now for two and a half of those years, of those 32, we've been a part of this faith community. We've been a part of Ethos Church. And from the moment we walked in for the first time, one of the many, many things that we love about this church is that whoever you are, whoever you are, and whatever you believe, you are welcome here. Pastor Jordan mentioned that a minute ago. You can belong right here as an integral part of this faith community without believing a single thing that this church believes. You're welcome here whether you believe in God or not, whether you're just beginning to think about questions of faith or whether you're a long, long way down that road yourself. Whatever your situation is, you're welcome right here in this place. Now with that said though, this church, Ethos Church, we are absolutely fixated on Jesus. We are fixated on him and what he's all about. We believe that Jesus and all that he did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, all that he did on our behalf is the hope of the world. And he is the hope of everyone, every person, in the world. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah promised throughout the older part of the Bible we call the Old Testament. We believe that Jesus is God incarnate, that he is our Savior and our Lord, that he is the literal, and I use the word literal literally, that he is the literal embodiment of God's love and grace and mercy towards us. And if all of that wasn't enough, The Bible tells us that Jesus is even more than that. The Bible has the audacity to tell us that Jesus is not only the heart and soul of our individual faith, but he's the center, he's the foundation, he is the core of all of creation as well, whether that creation recognizes him as that foundation or not. Colossians 1, a couple of verses there, Colossians 1 verses 16 and 17 says this, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. 
All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. Seems important to take him seriously. And Jesus himself says that the key to following him, the key to genuine faith, is to not just listen to what Jesus says, but to actually put his words into action, to implement what he says into the details of our lives. Now, we've been looking at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You fast forward to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus uh, gets to the end of this first uh, public discourse, and he says this in verse 24. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine, and listen, and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. That rock is hearing and practicing, hearing and doing. Christian ethicists David Gushy and Glenn Stassen, I'm sure everybody's read everything by them, they they put it like this. Gushy and Stassen write, we believe that Jesus meant what he said. And so it's no overstatement to claim that the evasion of the teachings of Jesus constitutes a crisis of identity, crisis of Christian identity, and raises the question of who exactly is functioning as the Lord of the church. When Jesus' way of discipleship is thinned down, when it's marginalized, when it's avoided, then churches and Christians lose their antibodies against infection by secular ideologies that manipulate Christians into serving the purposes of some other Lord. So that's been the motivation for the last few weeks. That's what we've been trying to do together, to take Jesus' teaching seriously, like he really meant what he said, like he wasn't joking around. And we've been asking ourselves, what does it look like in my life individually? What does it look like in our life together? to live out what Jesus said life should be. Because if, ladies and gentlemen, if we're more saturated by the thinking of a political party, whether right or left, by a social movement, whatever that social movement is, if we're more saturated by a religious tradition or a media outlet or common sense cultural goals, If we're more saturated by any of those things than we are by the teachings of Jesus himself, then we've missed the entire point. So this walk through the public words, this first public words of Jesus in Matthew 5, it's intended to be a reset of our core convictions, sort of a reboot of our hearts, a disruption of what may have become a staid and safe status quo. And a reboot, a reset, a disruption of religion is exactly what the Beatitudes are all about. It's exactly what it did to Jesus' listeners then, and it's what it's intended for us too. So we get to the beginning of Matthew 5, and by the time we reach the beginning of Matthew 5, there's been a whole lot of stuff that has already happened in this gospel. We've seen Jesus and his mom and dad visited by these three Actually, we don't know whether there are three, but these strange uh, 
astrologers from the east who, who come across a long distance to deliver gifts to Jesus and his parents. We've seen that. We've seen King Herod muster all his political and military power in an effort to search out Jesus to kill him. We've seen Mary and Joseph and, and their young child go on the run. They, they fled from, from uh, Herod with only what they could carry, and they, they lived um, as refugees in Egypt, waiting for the heat to die down, waiting for Herod to call off his troops. We've seen them return to their own country, but not to their hometown, and they went to a little town in the sticks called Nazareth, hoping to live safe and secure and quiet lives. We've met already John the Baptist earlier in Matthew, and we've seen Jesus himself, now an adult, come to John the Baptist and be baptized to, to demonstrate his own faith publicly. We've seen Jesus' first recorded encounter with Satan. We've seen him tempted with hunger and thirst and fatigue, and we've seen Jesus tempted with this opportunity to trade the calling that's on his life for temporal power, for safety, for political influence, for a life of ease. And we've seen Jesus, as hard as it was, say no to all those temptations. We've seen him call his first disciples. We've seen him start to preach. We've, started, we've seen him start to travel around northern Israel, start to gather people who were following him, start to, to gain a crowd that wanted to know a little bit more of what he said. All of that happened before we get to Jesus' first public discourse that we run into in Matthew chapter 5. That's our context. And then we see this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Finally, after all of that history, we see this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, and we just saw they're following him for good reason. There's been a lot of history already. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples, those who were following him around, came to him and began to teach them. And we've seen already from Pastor Jordan's first four messages in this series that Jesus absolutely did not meet anyone's expectations of what he was going to say. When Jesus started to speak, he upset everybody. Whatever social category you were in, Jesus rubbed you the wrong way as he got going. No matter who you were, his words were challenging, they were convicting, they were confusing, and they were often insulting because they undermined what you thought was true. One writer says that Jesus grabbed his audience by the throat and he didn't get let go until the teaching was over. In other words, Jesus was disruptive. And he said that following him was disruptive too. And over the last four weeks, we've seen that disruption. We've seen exactly that in the first four weeks of this series. We, we learned from verse 3 that Jesus says we're to be poor in spirit, not a life goal that many of us write down. We're to be poor in spirit. In other words, following Jesus means surrendering my will to God's will when all of culture around me calls me to pursue myself. We see in the next verse that Jesus calls us to be people who mourn. Again, not something 
on the top of the list. That's not something we often go to. But Jesus says, yes, we are to be people who mourn because then we'll be comforted. In other words, Jesus calls us that instead of pursuing short-term comfort and happiness by repressing grief or retreating from grief or resigning in the face of grief, we are called to intentionally trust Jesus. Listen, whether we feel like it or not, we're called to intentionally trust Jesus and to move into and through difficulty and loss and grief by refocusing on what is happening in us rather than what's happening to us. And not only that, but remembering that and trusting in that one way or another, God always delivers. Not in the time I want, not in the way I expect, but trusting that God always delivers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> in verse 5, Jesus calls us to a life of meekness, not a life of weakness or apathy or of being a doormat, but a life where my strength and influence, whatever that might be, right is brought under the influence and control and direction of my sovereign Lord. Yeah. And then last week we learned that Jesus calls me, calls you, calls us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To first recognize that my own rightness before God is not earned on my own merit, but to put our faith instead in what Jesus has done for us. And then once we've recognized that our own rightness before God comes from Jesus and what he's accomplished on my behalf, to then to surrender myself and intentionally step into my world and allow God to work his justice in me and through me to the world around. Yeah. This is all disruptive stuff. It undercut every common sense assumption that Jesus' listeners had. Today will be no different. Today we're going to take our next step, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Matthew 5, verse 7 says this. Blessed are the merciful, not the vengeful, not those who get even, not those who serve themselves, not those who are successful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus invites us, he invites us individually and again as a broader faith community, he invites us into his kingdom where mercy is the norm, where mercy, not vengeance, is the ethic. The word here that's translated mercy and merciful comes from the Greek noun, it's eleos. And most literally it's translated eleos or mercy. It means this, a loving response prompted by the misery or helplessness of another. Mercy is, the, is being generous in doing deeds of deliverance. Let me emphasize a couple of those words again. A loving response. It's a response. Generous in doing deeds. Mercy, in contrast to pity or sadness, is all about action. Listen, mercy is all about action. Mere pity or sadness for someone 
It becomes mercy when it stands up and acts, when it moves, when it transforms from an inward feeling into an outward action to do something about the problem it sees. See, pity, sadness, they become mercy when, when money is spent sacrificially on the practical needs of someone else. When time that I could spend on myself is, is sacrificed to meet the needs of another. When my otherwise good plans, those things are put on hold. Listen, when my otherwise good plans are put on hold to give priority to the interruptions of the tangible hardships in someone else's life. Pity becomes mercy when the inconvenience of someone else's needs take priority over my own calendar and my own plans and my own dreams and my own expectations. In their tiny little 526-page uh, book, Kingdom Ethics, we talked about these guys earlier, Gushy and Stassen, they give a pretty detailed explanation of what this word means, but they, they make one really good point that I think helps clarify what this word means. They talk about when Jesus walked down the road and a blind or disabled person desperately shouted, shouted from their misery, have mercy on me, Jesus. They didn't mean, Jesus, feel bad for me. They didn't mean, feel bad for me only. The mercy, the eleos that they were crying out for, that they wanted, that they needed so de desperately, it meant action on Jesus' part. And action from Jesus is always what they got. Yes. It's always what they got. Now, Jesus gives us a really perfect example of what mercy looks like in action and in real life in one of the most famous stories in the Bible. In Luke chapter 10, 30 to 37, we find Jesus sitting in a small crowd and he's engaged in a uh, public conversation with a lawyer, what's called an expert in the law, with a crowd watching. And as part of this little mini debate, Jesus tells the, the lawyer a story, one of the most famous stories in scripture, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The story goes like this in chapter 10, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now stop right there for a minute. I know that doesn't look like there's a lot there, but we may not see it today, but the story with these few words is already full of tension. There's already tension here because the journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho was about 17 miles-ish long with a 3,000-foot descent in elevation. The road was rocky and rough. It twisted and turned through rocks and narrow passages, and it was notoriously dangerous, difficult to navigate without encountering muggers or highway robbers. That was, the, that was the reputation of this journey, and so the crowd was already going, oh no. What happens next is no surprise. Continuing in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So our, our guy is in bad shape. 
He's naked, he's bleeding, he's busted up. There's no way to help himself. He's stranded, he's injured, he's in the middle of nowhere. But listen, there's good news, right? Help is on the way. No. It does get worse. Verse 31. A priest, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, that's an assistant to the priest that served in the, the temple. Uh, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, also passed by on the other side. Two religious leaders, they're walking along, walking the same path. They come across a guy laying there. And they actively take steps to avoid him. They move to what Luke calls the other side of the road. They put their head down, they close their eyes, and they keep going. Now, as cold as that, as that might seem, this would have made perfect sense to everyone listening. This was the common sense thing to do. Self-protection was key. New Testament historian and scholar Walter Liefeld put it this way. He said, the religious persons, the priest and the Levite, they act contrary to love, but not contrary to expectations. They did what people would have expected them to do. Listen now for the plot twist, though. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now the shocking turn of the story is that our hero, our hero is a Samaritan. Why is that a shock? Well, for a whole bunch of deeply rooted historical and cultural and primarily racial reasons, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And as this beaten and bloody Jewish guy lay in the dirt, if he was able to see through the blood and the sweat and the the drying tears, if he could see it all and he saw the Samaritan moving across the road towards him, his thought would have been, Things are about to go from very bad to much, much worse. That's not what happened. Instead of more violence, we're told the Samaritan felt compassion. And not only did he feel compassion, he took action at great personal expense bandaged his wounds. He likely would have had to tear uh, strips of his own clothes to bandage the wounds of this guy on the road. He used his own wine as a disinfectant. He used his own oil to soothe the pain. He put the man on his own donkey, which meant he would have to walk. He took the guy to an inn, stayed overnight taking care of him, paid the expenses, and then he was even willing to go into debt by saying, any other expenses that you incur, I'll pay on my way back. All for this guy, he didn't know. And then Jesus turned back to this first century lawyer and he asked him a simple question. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the one to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. 
37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had eleos on him, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him the same thing he's telling you and me today. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. What's it mean to do likewise, ladies and gentlemen? What's it mean to act in our own lives like the Samaritan acted in his? It doesn't mean that if you someday find yourself walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, then this text um, applies to you. What it means is to exercise mercy, eleos, in the lives of those around you every day, just like this Samaritan did. How did he do it? There's five things to recognize. First thing about mercy is that mercy begins with the need right in front of me. Mercy begins with the need right in front of me. Jesus' first point, and maybe the most important point in this story, is that if I just open my eyes, the needs will present themselves. The needs are all around if I will look. I don't have to work too hard to find needs that I can step into. It's not all that difficult to find needs that I can meet. I think like the Samaritan, if we open our eyes and look, bloody and beaten and broken people will show up all over our lives. It might be the person in the office next to yours. It might be that person sitting by herself at lunch. It might be one of your roommates. It could be the next customer that calls you or the neighbor who is right next door or across the back fence. It could be the very next person you bump into in the lobby or it could be your, the next server you have in a restaurant after church it could be the next person that's in front of you and that's Jesus point the bloody and broken they're right in front of us and our call is to look our call is to open our eyes and look mercy begins with the need right in front of me second mercy extends to the one who's in my way the one who's in my way, the one who slows me down, who messes with my plans, the one who isn't on my agenda. This is that person who's a hassle. This is an inconvenience. It's the one who's keeping me from doing what I want to do. It's the one keeping me from checking off that next thing on my calendar. It's the one person that's keeping me from getting to the place I want to go. And we should be clear, this dying, bloody guy on the side of this dirt road, this is not a convenient interruption for the Samaritan. This was not the Samaritan's goal for his day. He is on his way somewhere. He has plans in other places he wants to be. Listen, no one, no one found themselves on this road except... They had to use it to get somewhere else. No one was here on just a leisurely stroll to get a little sun. He was going somewhere. And at this horribly inopportune time, the Samaritan has a choice to make. Do I ignore him and go on my way? That's certainly the precedent that's been set in our our story so far. Or do I put aside my own plans and my own convenience? 
See, because just seeing the need isn't enough. Both the priest and the Levite, they saw the need. They might have felt sad. They may have felt badly for the poor bloody guy laying unconscious on the side of the road. But mercy chooses to act. The desperate needs we run into will almost never be convenient. They will almost never be convenient. If we wait for convenience, if we wait until we have time, then we will never act at all. Mercy begins with the one right in front of me. Mercy extends to the one who's in my way. Third, mercy extends to the one actively opposing me and my plans. Mercy extends to the one actively opposing me and my plans. We won't belabor this, but the choice of the Samaritan as the hero of our story is interesting for all those reasons we discussed. The deep-seated historical hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans were a division that was, that was seen as impossible to overcome. So really, listen, the point of Jesus' story is that if first century Samaritans and first century Jews can show mercy to each other like this, if they are called to serve each other despite the centuries-old racial animosity that stood between them, then any two people, including you and including me, we can be called to that same level of mercy. If this Samaritan can do it, there's no one that's outside of this call. There are no divisions big enough, no borders strong enough to excuse me from this call to mercy. Pastor Jordan's right, there is so much division. There is so much incentive to hold the other at arm's length to say that person is beyond my care. The story says there's no one, no one that is beyond the mercy and love and call upon the life of a follower of Jesus. Mercy begins with the one right in front of me. Mercy extends to the one in my way. Mercy extends to the one actively opposing me and my plans forth. Mercy extends to the one who puts me at risk. Mercy extends to the one who puts me at risk. Now again, without belaboring this point, but remember the setting of this story. Remember where all this action is taking place. This is not safe. It's incredibly risky for this Samaritan to stop what he's doing and to take the time to help. Incredibly risky. Showing mercy, stopping to help, made him more vulnerable himself. Listen, God's call on us to show mercy will often make us more vulnerable ourselves. His decision to stop, it put his life, his stability, his prosperity, his future at risk right along with the injured guy. See, any help worth anything would take his attention off his surroundings, off of protecting himself and make him vulnerable to attack, put him at greater and greater risk too. And yet, Jesus' example, the example Jesus holds up as demonstrating a of demonstrating mercy, mercy acted 
that way anyway, despite all that personal risk. You probably got to memorize now. Mercy begins with the one right in front of me. Mercy extends to the one in my way. Mercy extends to the one actively opposing me in my plans. Mercy extends to the one who puts me at risk last is this. Mercy extends to the one beyond anyone's expectations or common sense. Mercy extends to the one beyond anyone's expectations or common sense. Remember our friends, the priest and the Levite, both religious guys, both good community guys, both upstanding citizens. They walked on by and they did exactly what was expected. They did the common sense wise thing to do. And in fact, the entire culture around them, in fact, would have advised them to do exactly what they did. Now, you know the advice they would have, they would have gotten, and maybe you've gotten this advice yourself, or maybe you've given advice like this. You know, don't be a radical. Don't be foolish. There's no need to put yourself out there like that. It's dangerous. Take it slow. It makes no sense to stop and put yourself at risk. And that's exactly what the priest and the Levite did. Levite did. They did exactly what everyone around them said was not just okay, but exactly what common sense would have said was the smart thing to do. But that's Jesus' point. Demonstrating mercy demonstrating the eleos that we're called to in the Beatitudes. That often means acting in the face of common sense and doing what, what might appear to be foolish and even absurd to everyone else around me. Things that don't make sense at all, except for Jesus.